0: Welcome back to season 11, episode 22 of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast, where we bring you the extraordinary lectures from the DocSF Experience 2023. My name is Dr. Stefano Obini, and I will be your host for the podcast. In our next episode, we'll hear the second part of Dr. Billy's DocSF Science, also with a great team of experts. So please join me as we welcome Dr. Billy back to the DocSF stage. Peter is an orthosurgeon at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. He's passionate about the application of machine learning in eye-to-imaging, federated learning, and digital yeah. ortho. Thank you, Peter. All right, so let's dive in. So this paper talks about applying machine learning to a patient installation and selection of a patient total joint arthroplasty. So they discuss this case is taken during 2018 in about eight years, And they built an artificial neural network that was used to predict same day discharge. And they use other statistical model to identify variables that are significantly associated with predicted outcomes. So these are some of the results that they got. And I want you guys to kind of drill into
1: the data of
0: this paper and the outcomes that they Alan?
1: Yeah, it was good to see them using ACS NISQIP, the database that many health facilities populate with their patients in a large sample size for eight years and over 250,000 knees and 150,000 hips. What struck me was the accuracy as they took kind of 80% of the data to train the model and then 20% to test. There was a distinct difference between the ability to or their accuracy are between the total knee replacement and the total hip. And so that struck me, and I'd love to hear for our panel, but I think the total knee accuracy was over 80% for both same day and short length of stay. And for total hip, it dropped into the 70s. And then overall, the artificial neural network was more accurate predicting same-day discharges as opposed to the short stays. So kind of showing there are limitations to these models as you get larger and larger. But I'm curious, is the difference between hip and knees, is it due to the 100,000 case difference or is there something else going on?
2: Yeah, I was curious about that as well. Saw the difference. I gotta say I'm not exactly sure why that would be. I would say just anecdotally, I I think I have just as much success getting total hip patients home as I do total knee patients. So I'll pass that on over to the... Guy sitting next to me. I think thing that ACS NIST great data, it's clean, it's tidy. I mean, it's some of the best data out there, but of course, like all data, there's bounds on what it has in it. And I would be very curious about incorporating elements of the home environment into a data set. The number of times I hear stairs come up and I know exactly where that's going in terms of whether or not a same day discharge is going to happen or not. Usually that's one of the biggest things that comes up for me.
3: Interestingly, I was trying to write a paper and send an abstract in for this conference on exactly this, but I missed the deadline. And we did look at the Nesquip database and it's all over the place. It's a good database, but I think there is still a lot of noise in it. One of the things that Nesquip databases don't have is geography. So if a patient came from very far away, they would be unlikely to be sent on the same day. So there is automatically one of those confounding factors that we found. The kind of social network and support that they have at home would also determine whether they're going to go home the same day. So none of that is in the Nescope database. Thank you.
2: Let's move on. Who wants to introduce this one? So continuous real-time prediction of surgical case times. I like this paper, and I like it because I think there's actually some learnings in it. So the concept's simple. Can you train a model with data that's come in preoperatively as well as intraoperatively to accurately predict how long a case is going to take. And the idea being, if you know that a case is going to end on time, you know better how to deploy your resources. And of course, surgeons here in the room know that past a certain time, there's a change of shift and the cost of that gets more expensive. So insofar as those predictions are accurate and able you to make those adjustments, this is a useful tool. Their approach here, so they've got a fairly large data set, 70,000 cases over eight months, over eight hospitals. And what they're really testing here is comparing two model architectures and one is Bayesian. We don't have to go into tremendous detail about what that exactly means, and then they're using another architecture that's an artificial neural network that's ideally suited for looking at patterns and sequences of events, which makes some sense. The thing that I don't like about this paper is actually the results, I don't find them to be that good. They don't present one of the key things within the abstract. It's buried in there. They looked at actually what the clinical impact of this tool would be. And sure, the artificial neural network is a bit better, but in the course of eight months, they identified 11 cases in which they might be able to make a difference. That's not many (laughs) over the course of eight months and 80,000 surgeries. The other thing that they don't do, and I'll try not to dwell on it, number one is I'd wanna know how much money there is on the table. And so basic descriptive stats about how long these procedures took, how many went over the scheduled time, they provide none of that. So those marginal gains might be very, very important if there truly is a lot of money on the table. And then finally, they did something that I just cannot figure out. If you look at the number of cases in their training set, there's 50,000 cases. Take a guess how many were unique case types in terms of a name, like total hip, total knee, yada, 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 half. How is that possible? So total knee, TKA, TKR, total hip. So I tend to wonder if they shot themselves in the foot by having too many case types because half of them were unique. It doesn't make sense to me.
1: Ellen. Yeah, the other thing to add for that is of those case types, I believe they started with the 70,000 had the test data down to 50 or 60,000. I believe only less than 10,000 were orthopedic specific. So that brings into question the applicability of this Analysis on ortho cases, which in my experience, if you are a subspecialty orthopedic surgeon, your case duration is a little bit more predictable. At least the guys I know that do hand and joints, they tend to be, and even spine, they tend to know roughly how long their cases are. So if you look at a smattering of other surgical specialties, they have a much broader variety of cases. So that may play into the kind of perceived duration. And then the artificial neural network kind of had a plus or minus or a deviation of up to 13 minutes. And the other Bayesian approach produced a variation of 20 minutes. So is that significant? Like in the case of you can squeeze another case in because you save seven minutes, right? From scheduling perspective. So the applicability of this is there. They touch upon again, the costs associated with additional or accurate scheduling, but it'd be useful to see how this would play out in a real clinical setting with kind of
3: live case examples. I haven't read this paper, but my question to the paper would be, what was their end result? What was their end game? What were they trying to achieve by?
2: So they did a couple of different metrics. One was just a measure of accuracy of the model at predicting the time. Then they tried to create a a little more of a realistic clinical scenario where they said, look, how good is it at predicting it going past 3 p.m.? 5 p.m., where all of a sudden, maybe the dollars start going up in terms of the cost of the folks running the room. And then they also tried to see if it would generalize to other hospitals in a different setting. And it did about equally well. But those were the metrics they were looking at.
1: All right. Next one. Well, this one takes us kind of back full circle. This one looks at they created an outpatient shoulder arthroplasty risk prediction tool using multivariable logistic regression analysis, which is not the current AI or or the trendy data science stuff we're hearing about, the neural networks and large language models. So they're going back to the basics here, right? And overall, they had a smaller selection of patients, I believe 6,000 or so, and they identified 13 kind of key variables that influence whether or not a patient is going to be a good candidate for outpatient shoulder arthroplasty or should stay in. And kind of going to the previous model, the farther you get away from length of stay of zero, the harder it is to be accurate because there's just so many more variables that come into play. Most simple cases you can send home, but once you start to get into the case where should patients stay 24 hours, should they stay 36 hours, can we send them home tomorrow? We'll watch them and see kind of like the whole observation status scenario in the ED. A lot of Clinical decision-making is based on the dynamic change of the patient over time. So after surgery is done, most clinicians are comfortable sending a patient home. But if they're not, this is a tool that maybe can help them understand, should they keep them in longer or is there a predictive measure that they can look at to help them decide on that? And in terms of the accuracy, it kind of varied depending on what you looked at.
2: I like this for its simplicity. I mean, sometimes you don't need a complex model. And even going back to the other paper, that is quite a complicated model. That's a lot of work. But at the end of the day, what it was mainly predicting off of was toward the end of the surgery, which what's happening then? Well, they're giving meds to reverse a patient. Maybe they're going through the steps of extubation. It's a little like saying, hey, I'm on an airplane. Is the plane going to land? Well, I don't know. The flaps aren't going down and the landing gear is not down yet. So do you need something that fancy? And so I like the lightweight nature of it, low data collection burden.
3: This paper speaks to the paper that I talked about in the last session, where you can use artificial intelligence to predict the preoperative Part of the longitudinal pathway of a patient. And I think something like this for this kind of model would be really useful for any surgery, really. But I don't know details about this paper. Okay.
0: So in the minutes we have left, I'm going to ask you a general question about these papers that you have reviewed. And, uh, and so what's your take on this paper? Because some of these, they seem more like an academic exercise, more than really attached to reality. And so what do you think is missing and what would you like to see in what is published?
2: I mean, this is a theme over and over again. But for example, the paper that I presented, I mean, To even have that work, you have to have the data flowing. The data's got to be flowing in real time, and that is not happening in hospitals right now. And so in terms of implementation, I mean, you need simpler solutions if you're going to do
1: anything at all, because that's not the state of affairs right now. Alan? I think you mentioned at the beginning how many papers were reviewed for even this session. And I think that's just a fraction of the publications out there globally. And the rate of change and technology advancement is far outpacing our ability to keep up with publish, and look at peer-reviewed journal articles. That's kind of the fact that we're talking about GPT-3 on the last session, and they're already on GPT-4 and ChatGPT. And even in the paper, the author said, well, it should be somewhat applicable. By the time you have published something and the next thing has already come along, it makes continued research in this traditional way less effective. So I think there needs to be some kind of innovation around this to crowdsource more literature, to be able to sort through these papers to kind of really sift through because how long did it take you to read all these papers? And so having some sort of assistive device to help you really identify the ones that are robust, applicable, and have the necessary requirements to kind of meet the peer review threshold would be helpful.
3: I feel that these papers are a natural progression of what happens with every new technology. It happened to computer navigation, it happened to robotics and orthopedics, and now it's happening to AI as well. There'll be this huge number of papers that come out in its initial few years, and then the oscillations will start to dampen down, and then we'll have more tighter papers in a couple of years' time, is my feeling.
2: One thing that I'm constantly thinking about, and it's a source of frustration, so I'll try to temper it a little bit, is that, I mean, I love science, but right now I think what's needed is better infrastructure for data, and trying to get various funding organizations that specialize in science to sometimes understand that, I'm beginning to get quite frustrated with it, that that's an important part of science, having the tooling, and we're missing that in our hospitals. I don't know how to unlock that. You got any ideas? Bad data is worse
3: than no data. (laughs)
0: That's for sure. So we've seen, you know, during these days, technologies already presented and already implemented into real world, right? And yet, we still see these papers that are published. And to me, they project more doubts than certainty. And is this what we will keep facing, you know, as we advance in research in these fields, you know, more doubts will come up and will prevent some of this technology to be really implemented yeah. in real life
2: yeah magic uh, machine learning is not a magic pony it's just not again and not to harp on the paper that I presented but you know you look at that diagram of oh this is the model holy smokes like whoa I can't possibly digest this I don't know just ignore those images and actually just look at the data and think about the basic stuff and there's so much there don't get confused by looking at those diagrams Alan
1: I definitely think there's continued value as technology evolves. We find ways to use technology and clinical workflows. And I think one of the biggest lessons I learned since I started learning about AI and how it applies to healthcare medicine is that although they talk about AI can replace or kind of substitute for clinicians or certain tasks that need to be done. I think ultimately it will be the clinicians that understand AI and can read papers like this and interpret the data for their own in order to decide whether or not they want to use something that will continue to push the frontiers of medicine forward.
3: Yeah, I think I want to quote what Dr. Beanie said. We don't know what we don't know. Sorry to paraphrase you, Stefano, but we don't know what we don't know. And it is important to have this kind of conversations and push ourselves to learn new things like I'm doing. <laughs> this is all new for me, but if I don't do it, I will be left behind. But at the same time, just being next to people that know different aspects of the same global scenario, it really helps move the whole movement forward. And I didn't know much about, chat gpt a few months ago but every time i use it every time i watch a new youtube video on chat gpt i learn a new aspect to it that i would never seen before so we're all learning things that might not make sense to me now might make sense to me in a couple of weeks time or maybe never
0: <laughs> right tom can you join us again please so tom in uh the minute that we have left, I'd like you to wrap it up and give you your perspective on where research has to go, you know, to make sense of all of this. Well, everything has
1: to be brought together. Some of these AI things are sort of siloed and they're not all connected to the electronic health record or even accessible to clinicians. So in the future, they're going to, have to be more, I wouldn't say ubiquitous, but useful and in useful forms for people to be able to actually access them and really None of us know where any of this is gonna go. ChatGPT just came out a couple months ago and it changed the whole world. And, you know, it's only gonna get crazier from here on out.
0: Thank you. Please, a round of applause for our panelists. Thank you so much. Thanks again for listening to the Digital Orthopeast podcast and we hope you enjoyed Doc SF Science. If you find the talks as incredibly informative and topical as we did, Please share this podcast with your friends and leave us a nice review on your podcast player choice. It would mean a lot to us if you did.